Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to The Less Stressed Life, all about making this your time to feel freaking awesome about your life, health, and happiness. This podcast of The Less Stressed Life is hosted by Krista Bigler. Krista is an integrative registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in reducing food-related stress, inflammation, and symptoms of food sensitivities. She brings over a decade of nutrition expertise and playing with her food to the table. From coaching, teaching, writing, and work within a major food company to behind the scenes for a health celebrity. To learn more, visit lessstresslife.com. All right, today on The Less Stress Life, I'm so excited to be geeking out today with Karan Krishnan. He is the brains at Microbiome Labs, which if you haven't heard about today, I'm sure you'll be researching them like crazy after you listen to this episode. So he's a research microbiologist, has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the last 16 years. He comes from a lot of research as his background. He spent lots of years in R&D research and development in molecular medicine, microbiology at the University of Iowa. He regularly lectures at on the human microbiome at health and medical conferences and is sought after for um, national and satellite radio expert talks. So he's this chief science officer at Microbiome Labs, which owns Megaspore and a a vitamin K2 supplement, et cetera. We might let him chat about that here at the end. I feel like we're going to get on all kinds of tangents. And he's the advisor to seven other companies, I believe, and he can correct me. So welcome, Karan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So good to be here with you. Yeah, I'm very excited to be talking bacteria. (laughs) So so it's uh, you have the ability to really in capture your audience when you talk the numbers about the gut. And I think that regardless of the fact that we might know, we may know if you're listening about all the impact with the gut, the gut brain connection, how it affects so many, it affects everything. It's the core, right? So you and I maybe live in this topic in very different ways, but it's fun to give the lip surface to the magnitude of everything that's going on. So do you want to just give us a little bit of background about the gut and why we should all care about it so much? Yeah, um, and and that I think is is uh, extremely important, and it also brings up the point that we're living in a very exciting age because, um, you know, all of these years of the decades of medical research and study and all that have, have basically been looking at what we consider to be less than ten percent 
of what a human actually is. Um, and to explain that, it, it's important to note that there's about 10 trillion cells that make up the entire human body. You know, that's a lot of cells. Uh, 10 trillion is a number most people almost never come across on a regular basis. Uh, and that's 10 trillion human cells. But compare that to over 100 trillion bacteria cells that live in and on our body. You know, and, and we used to think of any bacteria that we find in and on our body as kind of accidental travelers. You know, we pick them up by meeting somebody. We picked them up by, um, you know, getting dirty somehow. And, and then they hopped on our, our vehicle of a body and, and, um, and they're accidental travelers. But we now come to know that we're in fact a lot more bacteria than we are human in many different ways. So this, the cell count, we have 10 times more bacteria cells in and on our body than human cells. And then the part that's actually even more fascinating is our genetics. You know, we've all been talking about genetics and our genes and our DNA for so long. We know and believe that our DNA is what dictates everything about us, uh, everything that we can see, you know, hair color, eye color, uh, the, the way your face looks, your height and so on. Um, and, and also the DNA uh, dictates uh, genetic risk for diseases and how healthy you are and so on. The problem is when they sequenced the human de uh, genome, what they found was around 22 to 24,000 working genes in our chromosomes. And that sounds like a lot, but then you compare it to a rice plant. A rice plant has over 40,000 working genes. Or if you compare it to an earthworm, a very, very unsoph uh, you know, uh, unsophisticated organism, has over 40,000 working genes. So we are half as cool as a rice plant or earthworm, right? And then the question is, how is it with our very limited number of genes, can we do all the things that we do, that we are cognitive care, um, you know, uh, organisms, that we have um, this capability of creating this world and moving up to the top of the food chain and the evolutionary ladder. And, and as it turns out, it's because we have over three and a half million bacterial genes in our body. So in fact, we use over three million pieces of bacterial DNA on a regular basis to conduct our functions. So what makes us human is actually dictated by the bacterial DNA that's found in our system. And that accounts for over 90% of our day-to-day -day function. Um, so their role in our well-being and in our bodies and in making us human cannot be overstated. You know, and, and we knew nothing about this until about five years ago. Yeah, that's the crazy part. So at no point um, can we ever give too much attention to the bacteria. So we're really not that mature chromosomally. I mean, earthworms and rice plants are more chromosomally diverse, but we're more, the thing that sets us apart is bacteria. And that's how we function, right? Totally. And so uh, it brings up a, a cool term that, that people can use at their next cocktail party um, to seem uh, like a super nerd, uh, holobiome. So holobiome is defined as a super organism. Right. So when we looked at evolutionary science to see, OK, how did humans who are who are relatively incapable of stuff uh, when you look at our physical characteristics? Right. There are many animals out there that are far stronger than we are, that are more adapted to living in the outside world because they have thick hides or they have fur to protect their body and their skin. Um, and they're stronger. They can climb. They can run faster. All of these things. 
um, that outdo us. How is it that the human, the Homo sapien, has actually surpassed all of the animals and gone to the very top of the evolutionary ladder? One of the reasons is because we have been fortunate enough to allow the cohabitation of thousands and thousands of other organisms. So holobiome means superorganism. So what we are essentially is a walking, talking rainforest. We are an ecosystem that is put together by thousands of different species that have to work together in concert in order to perpetuate the, the health and wellness of the whole. So, you know, we always had this view of the human body as all these organ systems connected by nerves and vessels and our brain controls everything. As it turns out, that's not really true. What we really are is a walking, talking ecosystem. And um, the, the amazing thing about that view is we now understand disease progression differently. Now we can go, we can look at virtually every chronic disease, things that are extremely scary like cancer, all the way to things that are benign but really annoying like acne, um, as, as having kind of similar progress. You know, if you mess up some part of that ecosystem, it throws off the entire whole. And, and that's really what a disease is. A disease is a, a, a messing up of some component of this complex ecosystem that throws off the balance of the whole of the whole organism. I love how we can always dial back and just embrace that whole keep it simple, stupid thing, because mm -hmm. really we do have core concepts. And if we start at that, then things feel or seem less complicated. We can go down all kinds of rabbit holes from that, but we have to stay true to the core. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, and the core is to me where real change can happen. You know, if we, if we keep going back to the core and we keep things simple and we, and we try not to um, complicate things too much, that's where we tend to see the most change, you know, just going back to the basics. And, and it becomes really easy in this world of really advanced scientific uh, discovery and, and abilities to, to study things to, to really get away from that core and really focus in on one small little component uh, in great detail, forgetting the, um, the baseline message. And that's keeping it simple and going back to our basics. So tell us a little bit. So we know that we're a walking, talking ecosystem, rainforest, but where do we get this microbiota? Yeah, and you know, and that's that's how um, important mom is to all of us, right? We all have this special bond with our moms for the most part, um, and the one of the most important things that mom does for us is it is she gives us our ecosystem. So, um, in large part, you end up with this ecosystem that's completely unique to you. That's another important thing to mention is that no two individuals in the world have the same exact ecosystem. Um, they're even identical twins who are born of the same mother who have 100% the same genetics um, can have up to a 30% difference in their ecosystem. So, so that's the most unique thing about us. Um, so during the birthing process, uh, passing through the vaginal canal, we get a huge inoculum from mom. And, and in fact, her vaginal bacteria have changed at that point to add new species that typically aren't there when she's not pregnant or not having a baby. And so her vaginal canal becomes this amazing bio, bio soup, if you will, of really, really important bacteria that end up uh, inoculating the baby. Now, that inoculum, as you pass through, 
ends up getting into the baby's mouth and ears and nose and virtually every other orifice and, of course, the skin as well. Now, the other part of it is is um, through fecal matter. One of the most common things that happens during natural childbirth is mom defecates. And that defecation is all right there. You know, the, um, the exit for defecation and the exit for the baby are, are inches apart. And, and so it's actually perfectly normal and also very healthy for the baby to get uh, exposed to mom's fecal matter. And, uh, and that's another big source of bacteria. So between the vaginal canal and the fecal matter, the baby gets a huge inoculum initially. And then after that, it's close interaction with mom and dad um, and then breast milk. Breast milk is, you know, probably one of the most important things uh, anyone can do for a baby. Um, and we can elaborate on that uh, as we go along. So I think about uh, having babies. I don't know if you've had any babies. And I remember having this conversation with the the OB staff about, I don't know why God put the anus and the vagina so close together because it seems a little backwards. But now right. we're having a conversation about... Uh, him, you know, our creator knowing what he's doing, putting those two pieces together, I think. And so now moms can go brag at mom groups that, yes, I did crap on the table during birth because I like to keep things entertaining around here. Well, you know, exactly. And that, and that is life-giving poop. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so important. For example, one of the most important bacteria that the baby needs in its initial part of life, so especially in the first six months, um, Having adequate amounts of this bacteria is absolutely critical, and that's bifidobacteria. And bifidobacteria is, is found in large amounts in poop. And the reason for that is bifidobacteria in your intestines, in yours, in mine, and all our intestines, are concentrated at the distal end of the intestine. So uh, basically in the, in the distal part of the colon, so the farthest part of the colon, right by the anus, right by when poop comes out. So when, when, when mom defecates, what what is concentrated in that fecal matter is bifidobacteria. And if the baby doesn't get enough exposure to that bifidobacteria, it's been it's been shown to create a significant amount of issues within the baby. Uh, for example, immune dysfunctions, it dramatically increases risk for al- asthma, allergies, eczema, psoriasis. Um, also, it can increase risk for uh, behavioral disorders as well, including autism spectral disorders. All of that from not getting enough poop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all we needed. That is our whole life simplified. Poop on your baby. Oh, Just poop on the baby. I mean, if you imagine, right? So you think about our ancestral babies. You know, we, we now have these like ultra sterile hospital environments. But for millions of years, mom has been squatting and, and essentially pushing the baby out onto the, onto the ground, onto the dirt. And, um, and at the same time as she's squatting and pushing the baby out, poop's coming out. And the baby's – the first things the baby comes in contact with in the, in the um, open world is dirt and poop. And, um, you know, and that's how our system evolved. And in fact, when you start looking at and, and when you consider that and you look at the types of bacteria in, uh, involved in dirt and the types of bacteria involved in poop, the two most important genres of bacteria that the baby needs early on in life are the bacteria found in poop and the bacteria found in dirt, like the bacillus spores. One, one study had, uh, that it published showed that the bacillus spores works alongside with mom's natural bacteria to actually build the baby's immune system within the gut. So that dirt poop combination 
is absolutely critical, you know, and, and for the most part in childbirth today, we've put barrier, of course, against the dirt. We, we no longer deliver babies in the environment. Um, but we also start to put barriers against the, the exposure to fecal matter, you know, and, and, and the biggest form of that is C-section. Mm-hmm. So how do you suggest that parents overcome the disadvantages of having a C-section or even antibiotics or a traumatic birth? Yeah, and, and the good thing is, the good news of that is that you can overcome some of it. Um, so it depends on the scenario. If um, if the C-section is elective, you know, which which people still do today, there was a big trend of it in the in the 90s where people were scheduling the birth because it's so much more convenient. Uh, that's really unfortunate. Um, and and if you if you choose if you're choosing to do that. Or if your C-section is required medically, there's, of course, many conditions in where C-section is required. So people shouldn't feel bad if they ended up having C-section uh, if they needed it medically. Um, that's that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, but if you're having a C-section and you're at the hospital or you're going to be at the hospital, you can, you can talk to your doctor about um, doing an impact swab. So, for example, if mom is going into the OR, what they can do is take sterile gauze and put it in the vaginal canal. And then once the baby is removed uh, from the incision, the first thing that should happen is that sterile gauze should be removed from mom's vaginal canal and wipe the baby down with the gauze. Um, Wipe all over the face and skin and head and all that. That seems to negate a lot of the negative effects of C-section and not getting that appropriate exposure. Um, and that was a stu- extensive studies done at NYU by two uh, microbiologists and, and I think OBGYNs. So they showed that if you can swipe, uh, swab the baby with mom's vaginal juices right off the bat, right as soon as the baby's pulled out, it can negate a lot of the effect. The other thing that can be done is giving the baby the right kind of probiotics. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, the bacteria, the, the good bacteria found in dirt that our humans have been exposed to for millions of years plays a really critical role in designing the initial part of the of the gut and the microbiome. Um, so the spore-based probiotics. And then the third part is breastfeeding. Breast milk contains six to 800 different species of really beneficial bacteria. It also contains 200 different types of prebiotics that the baby can't digest for food that's there purely um, to seed the good bacteria within the gut. So if you've ended up having a C-section or antibiotic use or any of that during birthing process, please breastfeed the baby as much as you can and for as long as you can. So what are your thoughts on use of supplemental colostrum, even later on in life? Um, so sometimes that's that's considered a gut healing. It's I mention it to to parents. So I work with a lot of eczema kids. Okay. And mm-hmm. often I'm, I'm seeing a history, at least in the really severe cases, I'm almost always seeing a history of a traumatic birth, um, possibly antibiotics of birth. They almost always have jaundice, which is really interesting, like almost a hundred percent. Very fascinating. Um, but we, we talk through, um, supporting internal organs and internal systems in the work that we do together. Um, and I mentioned colostrum as a potential that some people use, and not a lot of people have gone gone on to use that. But what do you think about supplemental colostrum? So I use colostrum. Um, I've uh, myself. I, I travel a lot. I fly. This year I've flown over two hundred fifty thousand miles. Um, you know, so I put a lot of stress on my immune system and on my on my body in general. Um, 
from all of that travel and all of that uh, presenting and all, you know so on. Um, I use it uh, quite a bit. I've, I've also used it with my kids. Um, it depends on the company also. You know, uh, there, there's, there's good, clean colostrum. Um, there are immunoglobulins that have been extracted from colostrum um, that can be highly effective. Uh, what I tend to find, and, and when you start looking at the research behind colostrum, is they've done a lot of good studies showing the uh, modulation of the immune response in the intestinal tract by colostrum. So colostrum becomes a really important component to me. If you have an unhealthy gut, if you have a dysbiotic gut, if you have leaky gut, for example, if you have inflammatory conditions, which, uh, as you mentioned, the eczema, psoriasis, those are all indicators of inflammatory conditions. All of those things, I think, can be helped quite a bit with the use of colostrums. They're basically immunoglobulins that help bind up and and uh, bind up toxins within the gut. Um, in, in, in particular bacterial toxins, and then also modulate the immune response in the gut to lower the amount of inflammation that's occurring in the lining of the gut. Um, and, and, it does, and, and it does the job well to do that. I think uh, one thing that I want to make sure I mention from what you just said is that this is a key point that a lot of us disregard or forget. You were talking about how you put your body under stress, you know, voluntarily by by the work that you do, right? But you're always supporting yourself. And so I think it's important for people to recognize where they're deficient and stop and say, whoa, I need to just give myself some support, even if, you know, even if it's short term because of this, this or this reason. So I think that's a valid point to stop and put a flag on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important that you did that because the other thing is um, when we understand the disease process in, in, in the new light that we have, you know, the, in, in view of the microbiome, in view of uh, human as an e- ecological system, one of the things that we, we start to understand is that disease, typically disease starts way, way, way before it ever shows up as something that's diagnosable. You know, so for example, if you have an autoimmune condition like Hashimoto's, the the process that has led to that diagnosable state of the disease probably started 15 years before that, even 10 years before that, sometimes much longer than that. Um, and, and it's a slow disruption of the ecology and, and your body's always trying to adapt and fix it, and then you continue to disrupt it, and the, and the body's trying to fight this battle, but eventually the disruption wins out, and then you get this diagnosable disease. So even though you're feeling fine you know, at the moment, if you know you're putting your body through stresses, if you know that you're not sleeping as much as you should be, you're not eating as the way you should be, you're not getting enough exercise, you're not being mindful enough, you're not you know, centering yourself on a daily basis, life is stressful, you still feel fine. But all of those things are causing that slow ecological disruption that will show up as a disease three years, five years, 10 years from now. You know, so people are very acute, you know, they're like, they don't really think about stuff until it happens. And, uh, and we want to make sure that we keep thinking about our body as this ecology and we know all of the things that disrupt the ecology. So as we're doing those things, let's also do things to complete, to keep resetting the ecology. I love that. And you mentioned something that reminded me of another point I saw you speak about somewhere else. And so I just want to diverge for a quick second from 
childbirth before we move on in the life cycle to talk about one other big stressor that's becoming a big this is this is an interesting topic so we're talking about spore based and um you know things that come from the environment that's kind of our our main end message today but there's other environmental stressors and there's um some things that are really seeming to kind of really butt the system right really butt our gi system and that is potentially some of the environmental chemicals that we're dealing with, right, that are kind of regularly in our dirt. Can you speak for just a second about kind of the impact of glyphosate and what that has, what that looks like just from a, a purely scientific and an evidence perspective? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, um, there are uh, th- this awesome um, gathering of data that has plotted the use of glyphosate in certain regions within the country um, and and they show the data shows when they start using glyphosate and as they increase the use of glyphosate they, uh, they plot it in parallel to the increase in prevalence of numerous diseases so things like autism spectrum disorders obesity cancers Parkinson's, diabetes, Alzheimer's, they plot it right next to the plot of the increased use of glyphosate, and they are absolutely parallel. And this is 20 years worth of data, you know, and so it's it's absolutely, um, you know, clear that there is at the least a correlative effect of the exposure to glyphosate and the increased risk for these diseases. Now, all that in mind, the FDA and the companies that produce and, and use glyphosate will tell you all day long that it's safe and it's been tested to be safe in humans. Hence, the FDA has approved it or the USDA has approved it for use. Now, the reason why they say it's safe is where um, the science breaks down. So glyphosate is a compound that interferes with a biochemical pathway called a shikimate pathway. It's basically a biochemical process that that leads to the production of energy and so on. Now, the shikimate pathway is a pathway that's, that is found in plants. And when you disrupt that pathway in plants, it kills the plant. So the rationale there is that human cells don't use the shikimate pathway. And so because we don't use the shikimate pathway, this chemical that interferes with that pathway is completely harmless to us. That's the rationale behind the sa- what, they pr- what they pronounce to be the safety of glyphosate. The problem is the bacteria in our gut utilize that same pathway. And when the bacteria utilize that same pathway, the, uh, the killing effect that it has on weeds and, and, and other plants, it, that same killing effect occurs in our gut. So it's basically consuming large amounts of antibiotics every single day through your food. And, and it's destroying our gut microbiome. And now we know that when we disrupt our gut microbiome, it causes disease. It now, uh, you know, it doesn't take a, a major scientific leap to put those two things together. That what glyphosate is actually doing is it's destroying our gut microbiome. And because of that, it's causing our huge increase in, in uh, risk for all of these diseases. So essentially, your environment is which is supposed to be helping your microbiome. We're supposed to be getting exposure to all of these good bacteria within the environment that enhance and protect the microbiome. Instead, we're getting exposure to these chemicals that are destroying the microbiome on a daily basis. You know, it's so pervasive that um, there are cases now that have been published where they can find glyphosate in the cord blood or the umbilical cords of newborn babies. Right. You know, it's in there. It's getting in everywhere. 
and your neighbor or yourself might be using the weed killers in your in your yards. Um, you know, and then the thing is, once it gets into the plant, it can't be washed out. So even if you take your buy your vegetables, you soak them, you wash them, you're still not going to get rid of the glyphosate because it actually goes into the cell structure of the plants. And so when you consume those plants, then it, it your bacteria get exposed to it. Oh, I wish we had time to go down that path because I have some funny stories, but we'll save them for later. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't think there's any escape from that. And it's more, this just goes back to that other flag point of when we know we're under stress, then we should really work on supporting that in different ways and really increasing our knowledge. And how do we support that? How do we always be working on improving our core health um, in different ways? And, and that kind of goes back to that whole topic. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, let me mention something about stress. Um, I want to give people two visuals so that they, they really understand what stress is doing. You know, we, we, we all know that stress is bad for us. We've always heard that stress can make you sick and stress is bad for your health. Um, you know, but, but, but people really don't appreciate what stress is actually doing. So um, let me give you two biochemical things that stress actually does. When we increase the amount of stress hormones that we produce in our body, so things like norepinephrine, epinephrine, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the cortisol and all those other hormones, one of the things that it's doing is it's actually increasing the virulence or the ability to infect um, of many of the organisms that are laying dormant within our body. So viruses, you know, we all have viruses, bacteria, amoebas, all of these things within our body that are pathogenic but are just sitting around and not really causing a problem until there's an opportunistic time for them to do so. One of the biggest drivers of those opportunistic times is the increase in stress hormones. So stress hormones in the body totally change your microbiome and favor the growth of pathogenic and infective organisms. So that's one mechanism by where stress really destroys uh, the body and has such a negative impact. The second one is stress causes leaky gut. Um, and we'll talk, we can talk more details about leaky gut, but leaky gut is the, um, as, as uh, stated in a 2015 published study in, in a journal of uh, Frontiers in Immunology, it's the number one cause of mortality worldwide, leaky gut, because it's the number one driver of most chronic diseases that we know of. And so the stress is opening up those gaps in your intestinal lining and actually causing things to leak from your digestive tract into your circulatory system. So just, I want people to have those two visuals and what stress is doing so that they really understand the importance of working on uh, reduction of that stress. It's discounted like crazy. I believe me, it, it robs you of your nutrients. I mean, it's so important. I appreciate you painting those visuals for us. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about birth and kind of all that <laughs> that big ecosystem. But we're talking about where do we get our microbiota and the bacteria evolves, right? And so when do we kind of really get to where it's set and determined and, and how does that change over time? Yeah, so the um, the microbiome initially uh, when you're first born and within the first six months um, tends to be dominated by a few species. Uh, Bifidobacteria is one of those species. The moment you start introducing solid foods, which is usually around six months of age, we start seeing an increase in diversity of the microbiome. New species can start to crop up because now there's other sources of uh, nutrients that can be um, consumed by different bacteria within the gut. So we start to see an increase in diversity of the microbiome right around six months. And that's good. That's what we want. 
Um, and then over at the end of the first year, you're starting to get a glimpse of what your adult microbiome looks like. Um, but after one year to two and a half years um, is where we start seeing the biggest shift in evolution of the, of the microbiome. And right around two and a half years of age is where you end up with what would be your adult-like microbiome. This becomes your unique signature of microbes that live in and on you um, that you will carry for the rest of your life. Now, for the next few years, you can make some slight changes to it, uh, and that's typically dictated by the foods that the people eat, where they live, um, the amount of antibiotics that they're consuming or having to consume, um, and all of those things can kind of shape the microbiome at that point. But for the most part, around two and a half years, you start establishing your unique traits and your unique set of uh, microorganisms, so essentially your ecosystem. And so that first two and a half years becomes absolutely critical to um, minimizing the things that can really disrupt people's microbiomes, like, you know, going really full organic as much as you can, uh, because anything that's not organic is loaded with glyphosate, for example. Um, you know, minimizing the use of antibiotics, if you can, um, minimizing processed foods that have a lot of preservatives in it, um, certainly not using any personal care products on, on babies at that age that have antibacterial, antimicrobial uh, co compounds in it, you know, and then allowing the baby to get dirty. So the whole thing with a one-year-old, two-year-old is they, they go out and they, you know, if you let them play in nature, they'll go out there and they'll get in the dirt and they'll get dirty and they'll have fun. That's natural to them. You know, they don't have the same view on dirt that we do as adults. And, and there's a reason for that is because that dirt is extremely important in shaping that microbiome of theirs. Um, so that kind of environmental exposure to natural um, environments uh, and minimizing things that would hurt the microbiome becomes critical in that first two and a half years of life. Okay. So at first, baby's inoculated with mom's bacteria. So mom's work on your bacteria now. And then about two and a half years old is when the microbiome really, well, we're really evolving the bacteria until that time. And then it kind of gets determined, right? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So that seems... Uh, unfortunate, right, for all of us adults that are past two and a half years. Um, but yeah. let's talk about, there's a lot of things that that can impact the microbiome. And I'm curious kind of about the length of how they impact it. But tell us how quickly the diet can change the microbiome environment. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and that's the thing, we don't want to lose hope saying that, you know, we're, we're over two and a half years, so we, we can't make an impact. The the good microbes are still there. For, for those of us that have uh, dysbiotic guts, and we know that because we've got some condition we're working with, whether it's you know mood disorders or it's obesity, diabetes, whatever it may be, um, we know it's driven by a dysbiotic gut. But the good news is you can still kind of make changes within your gut um, to affect that condition in a very positive way. Um, as an example, you know the difference between being um, obese and struggling with weight all the time versus being lean and, and being that kind of person that can eat whatever they want and, and never really gain weight is like a 3% shift in the ratio of bacteroidetes to firmecutes. You know, and so that small change can completely change your body composition. And so these variables can be affected for by diet. As you mentioned, diet can change your microbiome within a 24-hour period. You can have upwards of a 25-30% change in your microbiome, that's a 20 to 30 trillion organism change 
by just changing what you eat in a in a one day period. So now, we, for, well, I was just going to say, so when you eat healthy foods, you're going to crave or your body's going to want healthier foods, right? Absolutely. So the most of your cravings and your likes and dislikes and foods and all that come from the type of bacteria you've been feeding with uh, with the types of things you've been putting in your system. So if if you're eating a lot of processed foods and a lot of sugars, you know you 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 will more than likely crave more sugars and more processed foods because those are the types of bacteria that are now proliferating within the gut the ones that do really well on those sugars. And and when they do well, then their whole point is that they're trying to perpetuate their own survival. So they will create neurotransmitters and all that they send to your brain to make you eat more of those types of foods. If you happen to, ch- to, to do the hard thing and change your diet and cut out the sugars and all that for, for a period of time, it doesn't take long for your microbiome to change to a point where those cravings would go away. You know, and, and, and you demand healthier foods because now you have bacteria that like those healthier fu- foods and they encourage you to eat more healthy foods. Yep, I see that all the time. So yeah. let's let's talk about how antibiotics affect the microbiome and how we can possibly yeah. rebound from them. So, you know, I know you have some interesting stats about how they can kind of wipe out um, some bacteria. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, studies that have shown uh, – for example, clindamycin is a very uh, common, u- commonly used antibiotic for upper respiratory infections, sometimes for um, sinus infections, ear infections. Um, so it's probably one of the more imp- uh, commonly used antibiotics, both in adults and, and probably kids as well. Um, a study published, I think it was in 2015, showed that a single course of clindamycin, uh, a 10-day course, which is a common course of that antibiotic can take your microbiome over two years to recover you know so for two years you could have a disrupted microbiome um, we also know that fluoroquinolone antibiotics uh, you know which are which have been used quite um, extensively over the last few years uh, because they are more um, more powerful and we're developing more antibiotic resistant strains so they've gone to these um, new generation of fluoroquinolone antibiotics they can disrupt your gut so much that one of the biggest side effects of fluoroquinolone antibiotics is anxiety and depression. So so taking course antibiotics can then lead you to uh, psychiatric issues. Um, And then Augmentin, for example, is is another broad-spectrum antibiotic that's used quite a bit for um, uh, acute infections. A single dose of Augmentin at 650 milligrams can wipe down your, your microbiome by 90%. So imagine 90% of those 100 trillion bacteria get killed off with a single dose of the antibiotic. Now, they will bounce back, but what bounces back and in what proportion is where things get really disrupted. Right. You know, so, so, yeah, so antibiotics have a huge impact. Now, and I don't want to uh, demonize antibiotics. They are necessary in many cases. They will save lives. Um, if I'm... You know, if I have bacterial meningitis and I'm really sick, I'm going to want the doctors to pump me full of antibiotics to save me. Um, But, you know, there are things you should be doing. Again, if you have to be on antibiotics, there are some significant things you can be doing to reduce that recovery time from two years to as little as four, five, six weeks. Like taking probiotics? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I figured we'd just leave a cliffhanger there and don't tell them what <laughs> what they can do. Uh, but yes, taking probiotics. So the right kind of probiotic. Um, the spore-based probiotics are really useful because they are stable in the presence of antibiotics. Not only are they stable in the presence of antibiotics, but they also do something called competitive exclusion. One of the biggest issues when you take antibiotics is it is it favors the reappearance of unfavorable organisms uh, like Clostridia, for example, or Enterococcus. These types of bacteria get to bounce back faster than your good bacteria once the antibiotics have wiped down the population. So what happens is the, the new resulting microbiome has too much of the bad bacteria. One of the things that these spore-based probiotics do is they have the ability to go in, find those overgrown and bad bacteria, and actually directly kill them and bring them down, and then they produce prebiotics inside the gut to regrow your good bacteria. So as you're, you're, you're causing this decimation of your garden, of your flora within your gut, the spores are acting as a gardener and going in and, and, and continuously pulling out the weeds, retilling the soil, and resupporting the growth of the good bacteria. So they're doing that actively in the presence of antibiotics. I love so that's, a great analogy. I love a great yeah, analogy. It, a, a gardener. Because that's incredible that they could even do that much. That's shocking. That's not something you would say about other probiotics, honestly. Absolutely. They're the only ones that, that have that we've seen that have that kind of effect where, you know, if you think of your gut as a garden and, and you've got thousands of these plants, some of them good, some of them bad, and, and, you're, and you're affecting your garden on a daily basis by putting chemicals in the soil, and then every time you add chemicals or there's acid rain, you know, it, it, it kills off some of the good plants and weeds start to grow in, in, their, in their absence. What you're doing with the vast majority of probiotics is you're standing on the side of that garden and throwing in seeds. And you're hoping those seeds survive the process of, of flying into the garden through the acid wash, which is your stomach, and then getting into the soil and somehow embedding in the soil and then somehow outgrowing the weeds that are already there. That's what typical probiotics are. But the spores are the whole analogies. Instead of standing on the side and throwing in a bunch of seeds and hoping for the best, you're actually sending in an intelligent gardener that can identify the weeds, pull them out, grow the good plants. Now, the other uh, probiotic that can be very useful in addition to the spores during antibiotics is Saccharomyces boulardii. Mm. So Saccharomyces boulardii is a yeast-based probiotic. Um, it's it's um, completely stable in, um, in antibiotic, uh, during antibiotic use. It doesn't really colonize, but one of the things that it does when it's moving through your system is it produces a lot of lactic acid. And it re-acidifies your system. So one of the problems that happens with antibiotics that totally throws off the ecology is the antibiotics kill off a lot of the lactic acid-producing bacteria. And when the lactic acid-producing bacteria get killed off, the pH of the gut goes up. So the acidity goes down, which means the pH goes up. When the pH goes up, it favors the growth of candida, it favors the growth of E. coli, of clostridia, all these other microorganisms that do better in a higher pH environment. That's part of what drives the ecological destruction. When you put the Saccharomyces in there, it produces all of this lactic acid as it's moving through your gut, so it continues to, to keep the pH low or more acidic so that it's harder for those bad bacteria to, to um, show up instead. I haven't been giving Espiardi enough... Um lip service or credit when I tell people, I'm just like, well, this is an antifungal one, so we'll do this as well. <laughs> um, that's awesome. 
So I, and one other thing, as we talked, we put that big flag in about supporting yourself when you know you have times of stress. So we're talking about supporting after antibiotics or recovering, you know, if it takes a couple of years, we want to speed that process up because um, okay. we want to be always working on our immune system because when we get knocked down, it can get worse and worse and worse. But mm-hmm. an interesting thing I heard from you in one of your talks is that when someone else is in, in the house as kind of a negative microbiome or maybe on antibiotics, it impacts the rest of the people in the house as well, right? Yeah, that was a very fascinating study that was, um, I think, being done at Johns Hopkins by a um, uh, an MD PhD who's who's researching in the microbiome. Um, he presented that data at a at a microbiome congress where I was speaking as well, and I was fortunate enough to be speaking there because this data was absolutely fascinating. What he was able to show is if you take a household and and you had one person in the household you uh, taking antibiotics for some reason. Um, clearly that person's microbiome gets uh, disrupted quite significantly. And he measured the microbiome disruption up to, I think it was six or eight weeks after the course antibiotics was stopped. So he was able to show that during the course antibiotics, the microbiome was disrupted. And then that disruption lasted for at least six to eight weeks afterwards. And he didn't go any further um, in in the study. But what he wanted to show was that that disruption lasts even after the antibiotics are done. But the most interesting thing is he also studied the microbiome of the people that live in the same household that were not taking the antibiotics. And he showed that their microbiomes got disrupted in the same manner as a person that was taking the antibiotics just by living in close proximity to that person. And what was even fascinating is he he distinguished between, um, uh, you know, people who are platonic and people who were actually in a relationship together. So it didn't seem to matter if you were just a roommate and you weren't intimate with the person or if you were intimate with a person sleeping in the same bed, for example, none of that mattered. If you were in the same household, you, you suffered the same destruction. Interesting. And yeah, and that's, that's really fascinating. Now that, uh, that brings up a couple of really important things to keep in mind. Uh, one is, you know, moms, for example, moms, you know, they, they're so dedicated to their children and the health and well-being of their children. They give so much of themselves to taking care of their kids on a daily basis, um, especially when their kids are sick and if their kids are going through a course of antibiotics and all that. But what mom needs to realize is, as the child is sick and the child is taking that antibiotic and you're giving the child all the things you can try to give them to make them better, your immune system and your microbiome is being destroyed as well for two reasons. One is because that universal antibiotic effect uh, that we just mentioned. But the other thing is the stress. You know, there's nothing more stressful than seeing your child sick. And so um, those two things become so significant in hurting mom's microbiome and her immune system. And of course, dad and, and anyone else that's taking care of the child. Um, so it becomes really important that when your child gets ill, that you're taking extra care of yourself to make sure that you are remaining healthy as well, because you are getting this inadvertent destruction of your gut as well. Um, and then, you know, people who are healthcare workers, right? If you work in a hospital, you work in a doctor's office, you are surrounded by people who are on chronic antibiotics. And, and that seems to have a destructive effect. That was one of the purposes of his study was looking at the impact on doctors and nurses and people that work within the hospitals and what's happening to their guts on a daily basis because they're surrounded by people who are on antibiotics chronically. One of my favorite Quran quotes ever 
is uh, if only we could all have a giant vagina to go through every time we get sick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, in in the in the most innocent nerdy way, I imagine that all the time. I'm like. <laughs> If we could just be reborn through this amazing, healthy vaginal canal over and over again, we'd all be totally fine because there's nothing more life-giving and um, and supportive of wellness than than uh, vaginal canal. You know, that's that's where life really starts. If you if you think about it, what's happening in the gut? Uh, sorry, in the womb is the is the construction of the shell right? That's the baby. Uh, that's the human facets of it, the, the organ systems, the brain and all that. What really gives the baby life is the bacteria that mom inoculates the baby with. That's the spark, right? So if we imagine uh, if we're an engine and, and, and we're ready to turn on the engine, the spark plug starts the whole combustion effect that, that gives the engine life and makes it purr and breed and, and produce power, the spark of life comes from mom's vaginal canal that that in that inoculates that shell, um, and until that shell gets inoculated properly, it's not really functioning as a human, and that's what we've come to understand about the of the biome. You know, in 2020, that'll be your project, trying to replicate that in some <laughs> fashion. And, you know, it will seem really weird, but we're going to start doing all kinds of crazy things. Exactly. And 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 um, I've done it in my head a thousand times. <laughs> I've already created this amazing giant vagina for us in my head. So it's just about putting plans to paper and getting it done. It could be like a slide, really. So it wouldn't be totally. even weird. It could be kind of fun, sort of. Right. If you just ignore it, the some thoughts. Um, <laughs> so let's get some applicable or practical use questions out of the way. Yeah. So um, how long do you think it takes for a probiotic to take effect? And I want to qualify that a little bit more so you can kind of roll with that question a bit. So do you think that people should be cycling or changing strains? Because if your microbiome is as diverse as a rainforest, should you really be in pigeonholing yourself with two strains at least that's been the discussion with traditional probiotics and then like do you feel that people should be on probiotic forever long term does body come to rely on that bacteria that's been giving prophylactically or orally yeah so two very good and important questions actually let's talk about the first one about diversity uh one thing we do know with a great deal of certainty is that a diverse microbiome is the healthiest form of a microbiome there's been all of these studies on the microbiome and comparing the microbiome of different populations, sick people, healthy people, people that live in rainforests, people that live in urban areas. And, and the conclusion is diversity in the microbiome makes you healthy. You actually live significantly longer if you have a diverse microbiome. Your risk for, for numerous diseases are much more reduced with a diverse microbiome. So the, the whole goal here is to increase the diversity of the microbiome. So let's talk about probiotics and increasing the diversity of the microbiome. It, you know, it was, it was presumed that you can increase the diversity of the microbiome by taking a probiotic that has a lot of strains in it or that has or is shifting around and cycling through probiotics to get yourself some, um, some increase in diversity. Now that well, now that we really understand how the microbiome works and functions, we now know that that doesn't work at all. So think about a probiotic that has, let's say, 20 strains in it, right? There's not a lot of probiotics that have 20 strains. The average probiotic has somewhere around seven to nine strains in it. But let's take one that we would consider to be a super diverse probiotic that has 20 strains. Even if all of those strains are actually surviving through the gastric system, which 
with the mo- with most probiotics, they actually don't even survive through the stomach acid. But let's presume they survive, and let's presume they survive the small intestine, and they actually get into the largest part of the microbial population, which is the, the large intestine. 20 strains getting in and being added to a microbiome that has over 1,500 strains is a very small impact on the diversity of the microbiome. And the concentration is also very small. So most of these probiotic products will have, let's say, 50 billion CFUs. Now, 50 billion sounds like a lot, but when you put it in context of 100 trillion bacteria that are in the gut, 50 billion is like trying to change the color of the ocean by putting a single drop of dye in it. Mm. You know, it's nothing compared to the size and scope of the microbiome. So there is no way of making a diversity change in the microbiome by trying to add more strains at higher doses. And they realize this because they've been studying this in the case of C. diff, right? So C. diff is an opportunistic infection that occurs uh, when you're immunosuppressed and you take a course of antibiotics. C. diff takes over the microbiome and, and causes significant amount of diarrhea and illness. Now, C. diff is typically controlled by, in most healthy people, by a diverse microbiome. So C. diff is always there. It's not a bacteria that comes in from outside and causes infection. It's always there, but when your microbiome gets decimated, when the diversity of the microbiome shrinks, C. diff has a chance to take over and cause disease. So, so hospitals and doctors have been studying how do we control C. diff with the probiotics. So they've been giving people oral probiotics that have 300 billion, 500 billion CFUs, 15 strains, 25 strains to see if they can control C. diff. And what they've come up with is they have not been able to have a single uh, measurable impact on C. diff by utilizing lots of strains in high doses. And which means that that those types of probiotics are not changing the microbiome in any measurable way. The biggest reason is most of those strains don't even survive through the gastric system. So when you take them, they're getting killed off in the in the um, uh, acid of the stomach, and then you're just basically pooping out dead bacteria. What they've had to do is go to fecal transplants, right? So that's where fecal transplants came from, is they realize it, that they can't get enough strains of bacteria and high enough concentration of bacteria through the oral route Uh, to make any measurable change within the microbiome. So what we're going to have to do is take someone's fecal matter, which has trillions of bacteria, and and then send it up the butt because then it avoids the uh, acid wash of of the stomach and the small intestines and all that. So that is significant evidence that you cannot change and impact the diversity by just trying to take probiotics that have a lot of strains in it and high concentrations. Um, Now, what we have shown, we're, we're actually going to be publishing a study uh, probably in March of next year, is with the spore-based probiotics, just taking five strains, increases the diversity of the microbiome by over 20 trillion organisms. Then the question becomes, well, how in the world does five strains actually increase the diversity, right? Again, keep in mind that these are the gardeners, right? So what they're doing is actually going in and completely reconditioning the gut. So they're going in and they're detoxifying the gut. They are actually directly suppressing the growth of overgrown bacteria, of unfavorable bacteria, and then also producing prebiotics to regrow the good bacteria. So these guys actually have the ability to go in, read the microbial environment, that fancy word for that is called quorum sensing, 
and then figure out where there's less diversity, where there's overgrown organisms, and they can actually fix that by, by killing off bad bacteria and increasing good bacteria. So we saw this huge amount of increase in microbial diversity within a microbiome by just adding in these gardeners. This is the spores. So if you're going to increase diversity by probiotics, so far the spores are the only ones that have ever been shown to be able to increase diversity within the microbiome. Um, the second part of, the, of, of your question uh, about getting used to it, um, we were concerned about that too because there was a study that's uh, being worked on at the American Gut Project. And what they were studying is they're looking at Crohn's and colitis, these inflammatory bowel conditions, uh, because the prevalence of these conditions are going through the roof. And what they were trying to do is, um, what they are doing is actually characterizing the gut of people that have Crohn's or colitis uh, compared to healthy people that don't have those conditions. And they were looking for differences between the microbiomes. What they were able to find is the one measurable uh, difference that, that was quite prevalent was that people with Crohn's tended to have an overgrowth of lactobacillus acidophilus. And lactobacillus acidophilus ha happens to be the number one selling probiotic strain in the, U in the U.S. in the probiotic industry. It's found in, in most yogurts and fermented products. It's also found in virtually every probiotic on the market. Now, we don't have enough data to say that the probiotics are causing this, this condition because of the overgrowth and overexposure of the strain. But there's certainly correlative data to show that too much of any one strain could be a problem. Right. And so with that in mind, what we did is we said, OK, where did our ancestors get their probiotics from so that we know that we, we were looking at sources that humans were continuously exposed to on a daily basis? And that's where the environment comes in. So our ancestors were hunters and gatherers. They were foragers. They ate dirt. They drank waters out of rivers and streams. They got huge amounts of exposure to environmental bacteria. And some of these environmental bacteria developed the capability of getting into the uh, system, getting past the, the um, stomach acid, and actually going and living in the gut. What's beautiful about what they've done through the course of evolution is these strains have made themselves semi-transient, meaning they live in the gut for right around three weeks and then they leave. And they leave in particular, because if they don't leave, then at some point they would overpopulate the environment. You know, so they've kind of created this, this limitation on themselves so that you could still get the benefits of the daily exposure for them stimulating the immune system, helping you digest your food, producing short-chain fatty acids, sealing up the leaky gut, um, doing the gardener work in your microbiome. And then at some point they leave so that then they don't overpopulate. So that so there's a self-regulatory mechanism there. With other conventional probiotics, um, the the studies done in American gut seems to show that maybe there is a risk at o of overexposure to those particular strains. There it is. You know, um, it's just odd. It's like they have their own brain, right? I mean, they're <laughs> this master intelligent gardener, just the way they're working. I don't think people listening necessarily, I think maybe media has made us think that probiotics heal gut permeability issues. They do not on their own, right? Until we're talking about this spore based and from what you found in your in your studies. And so just that is sort of quite jaw-dropping for me. So I'm taking your challenge. I'm going to start putting everyone on it and we're going to track and, and look at the data as well for, for fun, right? Because we're all kind of absolutely. Um, but here's a big question. So we're talking about looking at what your aunt, where our ancestors got probiotics. Um, 
So it sounds like we're talking about dirt-based. Can you clarify the difference between dirt-based and spore-based probiotics? Yeah, that's really important because um, what I hear a lot is people assume that all soil-based organisms are spores. That's not true. Um, most soil-based organisms live in the soil, function in the soil. Their whole job is to turn over the soil. They break down plant matter. They break down you know, carcasses of dying organisms. They fix nitrogen. Their whole function is in the soil. Most soil organisms don't really do anything as a probiotic within your gut. They, If you're exposed to them, they pass through. Uh, during the passage, they can upregulate some aspects of the immune system, which is good for you, and then they move right out. And, and a lot of them also die in the gastric system. The spore-based organisms are sitting in the soil in a spore form, waiting to get consumed because their natural home is the gut. Their natural home is not the soil, it's actually the gut. They're actually part of the commensal flora, but you you gain exposure to them in the outside environment rather through mom rather than mom's uh, vaginal canal. And that's the big difference. So um, if you see a product that says soil-based organism product, um, it's typically organisms that are just grabbed from the soil. And most of them aren't really going to function as probiotics. They're not harmful in any way. Um, they, some of them can actually be beneficial, but they don't form spores. So m- most of them will die going to the gastric system, and they won't really colonize in the gut. What we've done is focus specifically on the spore-forming organisms within soil that have the capability of surviving through the gut and then actually colonizing and living in the digestive tract and creating all these changes. So what you what you need to look for when you're looking for a spore-based product is you need to look for bacillus endospores, so things, uh, strains like bacillus subtilis, bacillus um, clausi, bacillus coagulans. These bacillus organisms are the true spore-based organisms, and typically the product should say spore organisms on it somewhere. So to distinguish between just soil organisms um, and, and, so- and spore-based organisms. Okay. There's a lot to take in there quite a bit. I mean, yes. I'm just kind of scanning some of my notes there. Other probiotics, so I just want to kind of differentiate. So we talked spore versus soil. They're not quite the same. Spores are there waiting. It makes me wonder. I see, so I have some really complex, really chronically ill people, um, just really rough. They're kind of on life support with dialysis and whatnot. And I see mm. a lot of pica, right? So that's craving a non-food yeah. items and craving a dirt. And so just, and usually I consider that kind of a mineral deficiency, but it makes me mm-hmm. curious about what, what else that could possibly mean. Like our body innately sort of knows things if we would listen to it sometimes. Um, yep. so it's just kind of a curiosity, but so spore versus, um, soil based, but then just for context, other types of probiotics are generally derived from animal or human sources. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. They're usually um, isolated from uh, fecal matter in um, healthy human volunteers or animals, um, and then they're cultured on dairy to grow them up, and um, and then they're they're dried and uh, turned into a powder. And their survival mechanism is generally the capsule. I mean, there's a couple strains that do survive stomach acid without, I think, bacillus coagulans, but generally that's their survival mechanism. Whereas the big differentiator is with um, spore-based is that they're so hardy and they don't, yep. I mean, they're just not killed. I mean, you can, they're shelf-stable, et cetera. There are other, you know, there's conventional or I don't even know how to refer to them, you know, spore-based and non-spore-based. What do you use? Yeah, I, I just call them conventional probiotics. Um, 
which are which are your typical lactobacillus strains, your bifidobacteria strains, um, streptococcus, and all these other things that are utilized in in most conventional probiotics. And and like you said, the the way companies try to get them to survive through the gastric system is by the encapsulation process and you know um, or tableting process where they add special coatings and all that. And and to me, you know, I'm a I'm a microbiologist and I. I follow the signs uh, very closely in, in anything I do or recommend. Uh, but I also have a side of me that's very much an evolutionary biologist. And I also believe that in nutritional ther- therapy, uh, what we should be doing for the most part is doing things that we are supposed to be getting exposed to in, in a natural habitat that we inadvertently don't because of our modern lifestyle, right? And so when, when I see a company that's taking a strain – and it's and it's adding all of this technology to the strain to try to get it to survive our natural digestive system. It indicates to me that that strain is not meant to be used as a probiotic, right? Nature did not create it to be a probiotic when you have to engineer it to try to do a function. That's the pharmaceutical model to me. The pharmaceutical model is all about trying to re-engineer our, our biology, you know, interfering with normal biological processes or, or, um, dis, or uh, pulling them on a tangent in another way, uh, stopping something, stimulating something uh, in an artificial way. And that's really kind of how most of these probiotics have been developed. I wanted to go back and look right at nature and say, what did our ancestors get as probiotics? And which one of these strains that our ancestors would have been exposed to has the natural capability to survive through the gastric system. You know, having that natural capability to survive through the gastric system, which is very rare for a bacteria, indicates to me that nature intends this bacteria to be a probiotic. And as it turns out, when you when you focus on those organisms, they really do function as probiotics. They are the gardeners of your garden. And nature created them that way. You know, and so this spore is its own microencapsulation. The bacteria puts this armor-like coating around itself to be able to survive through the harsh gastric environment, to be able to survive through the bile acids and bile salts of the upper GI, and then get to the site of action naturally. Once it gets to the site of action, it actually breaks out of the spore and goes to work for you as a functioning probiotic. Do you know how long the spore-based probiotics last in the gut? Or can you compare them how to how? I mean, I can touch real quick as well. I know you did some work on looking at um, how much. Actually, I'm going to let you answer that before I even go down that road. So how long um, How long do the benefits of probiotics last in the gut? So each individual, I mean, the benefits can last for, for some time because they make a real fundamental change mm-hmm. in the gut. You know, as I mentioned, they completely change the microbiome. Um, give you an example of that. One of the very, very important classes of bacteria in your gut are uh, is called acromantia. Acromantia, especially mucinophilia, is a should make up in a healthy individual five to ten percent of their microbiome. High levels of acromantia are associated with being lean, having very healthy metabolic systems, very low risk for heart disease, very low risk for uh, diabetes, cancers, and so on. So high levels of acromantia are, um, is indicative of a very healthy microbiome. One of the things we showed in a recent study is that when you add the spores in, in a matter of three weeks, it dramatically increases the amount of acromantia in your body. You know, so the spores have a way of increasing these other good bacteria. So those changes last for some time until, 
you know, the spores are gone away. So with their continuous influence, they're gone. Let's say you stop taking it. And then the glyphosates and other chemicals and all that we're continuously exposed to take hold, they can uh, diminish the, over, the growth of acromantia once again. So what we say is the spores themselves last in your body for about three weeks. Every single dose you take hangs out for about three weeks. Their impact on your body can last longer depending on your lifestyle. Interesting. So in terms of immunity, it would be beneficial to be taking these probiotics at least on occasion to help build that up um, kind of prophylactically ahead of getting some kind of bug, right? Absolutely. So now one of the one of the most important aspects of your immune system is something called the payers patches, which is found in the ileum of your small intestine. So that's the very end part of the small intestine. The payers patches are the number one source of sampling for all the stuff that's coming into your body from the from your digestive tract, from your nasal pharynx and all that. One of the things people don't realize is that there's something called a mucociliary elevator. Right. So all the mucus that's in your chest, in your sinus cavities and all these other areas that get exposed to viruses and bacteria on a regular basis, the mucus in that area captures those those uh, toxins and bacteria and viruses. And then the mucus is designed to move up and then through and then into your throat. Right. So you're supposed to be able to like um, uh, serp up your the mucus from the chest and all that and swallow it. So that mucociliary elevator is designed to take mucus that's full of bacteria and viruses that could infect you from all of your upper respiratory system and cause you to swallow it. When you swallow it, what's happening is then that mucus goes in and it presents all of that stuff to your payers patches in your small intestine. Then that gives your immune system a chance to learn what kind of viruses and bacteria you're continuously exposed to and build an immune defense system against it. Now, what we've shown through studies is the spores interact with that part of your immune system really, really effectively, and in fact, um, increases the capability of your immune system to, to form a protective reaction against all of the viruses and bacteria that you're typically exposed to. So it's important to get that uh, regular exposure to the spores if for no other reason, it's so that they interact with the payers patches and enhance your your capability of mounting an immune response to protect the body. Okay, good. Well, that's good practical things that people should know that sometimes when you're trying to take a probiotic in the midst of an illness, it's we always used to compare it to throwing a glass of water on a fire, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Do you agree with that analogy? Um, no, so in, in, in this case... Sorry, you went uh, you went blank for a second. Um, in this case, um, when when you have all that mucus and all that stuff oozing through, that contains the virus that's making you ill or the bacteria that's making you ill. And swallowing that is actually a good thing. Um, most of us blow it out, you know, like uh, when we blow our noses and, and it's it's blown into a Kleenex or, or um, napkin. But it's actually good to swallow that to some degree. And then you take the spores with it. Then as your immune system is trying to fight off that bacteria or virus, you're basically presenting which virus or bacteria it is that's causing the illness to your immune system. The spores are presented along with it, and the spores dramatically enhance the ability of the immune system to fight that off. So in an acute situation, if you have a cold right now, it becomes really important to swallow some of that mucus and then take some spores with it. It'll, it'll enhance the body's ability to fight that cold off. Um, I had a dietitian that had a question for you about the long-term safety of spore-based probiotics. Um, but mm-hmm. it sounds like they've been 
in use for a long time, right? I mean, they've been around forever. Yeah, I mean, uh, to give you an example, you know, um, in the pharmaceutical industry, they've been around since 1952. They're, they're some of the most widely used probiotics in Europe, Asia, Latin America, everywhere but the U.S. Um, they were launched as a prescription drug in France and Germany in 1952. They have been prescription drugs in, in most of Europe, in Russia, in Southeast Asia for well over 60 years. So there's a lot of data on the safety of their use, long-term use in the pharmaceutical industry where they actually collate this kind of data. Um, other than that, we also know that spores, these same spores, have been in the uh, highly abundant in the natural environment for the last uh, three to five million years all throughout the course of human evolution. So our ancestors have been naturally exposed to these same strains and consuming them on a daily basis every time they ate food or drank something. You know, so we, we've we've had a very long term relationship with these particular organisms, hence their ability to get in and understand what our gut should look like. You know, they know better what our gut should look like than we do. You know, they have the ability to get in, read the gut environment and figure out what's wrong with it and then um, and then make the adjustments to it. You know, I've been, I started studying probiotics in 2008 and I learned a lot today. This is just a really exciting, crazy growing field. And this is just such a separate piece of it um, that I think is really going to take hold kind of as, as more people start to understand what the difference is, because honestly, it's just not understanding. You know, we've, we've been conditioned for so long about conventional probiotics, so much about yeah. them. And there's just some key differences about these spore based, you know, they're so much hardier. Um, they'll survive the gastric, uh, the stomach acid. I know you have some information about how, um, you know, conventional probiotics just really aren't even making it to the site where a spore based definitely do just the way they yep. act once they get in being a master guard. Those are some of the key differences I've heard today about the benefits of spore probiotics, maybe over conventional probiotics. Is there anything else to kind of add to that? Yeah, the, the, the two to me, the two biggest things and the reason why we focus on them so much is we were looking for bacteria that had um, a universal effect on the body. When I say universal effect, I mean fixing certain fundamental defaults that are associated with having a disrupted microbiome. Two of those things are the diversity in the microbiome. So what we were looking for is a bacteria that can actually enhance diversity of the microbiome. We've been able to show with our studies that this that these spores do. No other probiotics ever publish any studies or produce any studies to show that. And then the second part is a probiotic that can actually heal leaky gut. Leaky gut, again, being the number one driver of most chronic diseases, being able to heal leaky gut becomes a significant um, or has a significant impact on health and wellness in general. We, were the, we published the very first study um, in, in August of this year of a probiotic actually healing leaky gut. In fact, we published our study in the, um, in the World Journal of Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology. It's a straight up GI doctor journal where they hardly ever talk about probiotics or anything natural within the gut. Uh, but they were so interested in having us publish this study in their journal because they saw it as a frontier paper because nothing's ever been shown to do this effect. So um, just the ability of the spores to increase diversity and heal leaky gut to me is so significantly impactful on health and wellness. 
and and that's throughout you know the whole spectrum of diseases that we're trying to deal with. It's uh, a really big deal. <laughs> I tell people yeah. all the time about how when they're they just throw you know a random probiotic at, at whatever condition, I'm like, well, it's kind of like step four in the process, right? Like I don't really right. add that. Um, so. Just this idea, and now I'm kind of excited to experiment with it because, I mean, as much as I'm speaking to the condition, right, IBS or eczema or whatever, what we're really always doing is working on gut, right? Um, Absolutely, yeah. And and it's the same disruption in the gut. You know, um, when we were speaking earlier, I mentioned that if you take, like, let's say two diseases that couldn't be more opposite, take acne as a disease and, and take Parkinson's as a disease, right? One affects younger people. It's typically cosmetic. It's not life-threatening, but it's a really annoying condition that has huge impact on people's social life. And then Parkinson's, which is considered to be a incurable, um, you know, a degenerative disease that typically affects old people. Imagine that both of those have the same starting mechanism. They're driven by the same thing, but they manifest completely differently in the different parts of life. You know, both of those start with hyperpermeability of the intestines, LPS endotoxins from the gut leaking into the circulatory system, and then and then causing the immune activation either in the brain in the case of Parkinson's or um, in the in the skin and and the um, capillary beds in the in the skin in the case of acne. You know, but there's such different diseases with the same driving force. And so our focus has been how can we stop that, that, that universal driving force of many of these conditions? So just despite their shelf stability, I feel like spore probiotics aren't necessarily easy to find. Can you tell us about where we can find these probiotics? Yeah, so um, you know, when we first started investigating this, we went and we realized that these spores are extremely important and are probably the next generation of, of highly effective probiotics. Uh, we searched the U.S. market and we found no real spore probiotics, especially not a multi-spore probiotic with, with more than one strain in it. Um, so we had to create one. So we, we developed one, uh, a product called Megaspore Biotic, uh, and that's the one that, we, that we've done all our clinical trials with. That's the one that we're doing our current six clinical trials with. Uh, it's called Megaspore Biotic. It's, it's got five strains in it. Um, it's typically sold only through practitioners. We don't sell it in retail and so on. Um, but, but practitioners like yourself um, can, can offer to, to your patients. Right. And there's a couple strains here. I'm, I'm holding the bottle and looking at it. There's a couple strains for sure that are patented specifically for your company only. So you'd be the only one that, that has those strains? Yeah, actually, uh, four out of the five strains are um, we have the global exclusive on. Uh, we work with Royal Holloway London University uh, to to obtain these strains. When when we decided, okay, we wanted to do our own spore based probiotic because we didn't find any in the marketplace. We went right to an academic institute to get access to strains because nobody studies strains better than an academic institute because they they look at it purely from a scientific academic standpoint. They get into every aspect of the genetics of the strain, the uh, proteomics, which means the types of proteins the strain produces. So they studied these strains inside out and knew virtually everything about it. Um, and so we went to them and, li- and globally licensed these strains specifically for uh, creating this particular product. So it's only in this product that you'll find these strains that have been shown to you know, increase the diversity, heal leaky gut, and all the things we've been talking about. 
Well, thank you for uh, going to gather those up and you and deliver them <laughs> to us. It's so nice of you. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, and the crazy thing about it is the vast majority of my career, I've been behind the scenes uh, doing research. I had a clinical research company that I started where I was doing contract clinical research work for nutritional companies, helping companies develop products and so on. Never did I think would I have a product of my own in the marketplace at any point in my career. And so this came purely out of need. Um, I got into the probiotic industry because I was, my research company was hired by a large multinational brand company to study probiotics and to recommend to them what types of strains would be kind of the next generation of probiotics. So through our research work, we came up with these spores and we went to them and said, hey, these are the real strains. This is what nature has created as, as probiotics for us. Nobody's using these. You've got to be. You've got to create a product with this. Uh, and the fortunate thing now, in retrospect, is that when we went back to them with this recommendation, they had just got bought out by a much larger entity, and they said, "You know, we are not doing any new products right now. We're tabling all of that. We're going through all this reorganization." And we and I thought to myself, "You know, this is so important. I've got to just make a leap and produce a product myself." So this is the first and only product that I've produced. Uh, you know, as as my own uh, that I'm that I, I put my stamp on, and and it took us over five years to develop it. You know, to really study the strains, formulate it correctly, figure out the right dosing, how to use it, and so on. And then and then after day one of launching the product, our focus has been spending at least five times more on on clinical trials than we do on marketing. And that's exactly the opposite of every other company in the supplement world. Every company in the supplement world spends a lot on marketing, virtually nothing on clinical studies. Um, and so that's that's the big difference here. So we're very proud of the product. Uh, we, we've seen huge amounts of differences. We've got all, almost 10,000 doctors in the U.S. that use it. We're now in nine other countries uh, and there's thousands of doctors all over the world that use it. We have, um, we're completing five new clinical trials. So it's super exciting to see what it can actually do. Um, and I'm always very grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about it and just talk about gut health as well. So, you know, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because I think it's so important to get this stuff into people. Um, and I you can know, tell you're a natural, like it's just your passion. I bet you kind of jump out of bed for this every day. <laughs> I do a jump on and go spores. <laughs> <laughs> and you think about that slide you're going to make and it's just. Oh my God, that's a fantasy. Yes. <laughs> uh, the giant you know, slide. And- and as someone who's worked in industry as well, usually you don't see that research and the product always connect or marry so beautifully. Um, so right. the fact that you're doing all that research on the back end will make your marketing effortless eventually. But that's my biggest complaint about spore-based probiotics right now is I don't know enough about them. So thank you for yeah. letting me share this with my audience for sure. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And this episode ended with me asking Karan if I could help Megasporbiotics and the family of kick butt products at Microbiome Labs take over the world. <laughs> but for real, if you now need some Megaspore to help you up level your microbiome world, we explain where you can get this Chuck Norris of a probiotic in the show notes below. It's such an effective probiotic that they want you to have a provider like yours truly for dosing. 
Now, if you loved this episode as much as I did, share it with someone you love because you know now that families share microbiome. We'll see you in the next show. If you hit subscribe, remember it's a boomerang. Good things come back to you. Talk soon. 